Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. We're delighted today to be joined by Glenn Kusker. He's lecturer and coordinator of the MSc and Masters of Veterinary Science programmes in One Health and Conservation Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. He's also the recipient of Social Responsibility and Sustainability Changemaker Award. He's writer, photographer, is an international mountain leader and a veterinary surgeon who actively uses narrative and photography to help individuals, communities and organisations understand, explore and reimagine their relationship with animals and the environment. His work's about connection and systems thinking and also empathy. He's a member of the philanthropic agency, the photography agency that I, I set up and um, PhotoAid Global. <laughs> all in all, he's a good man. He's making a difference. So Glenn, I really appreciate um, your time with us today. Thank you very much, Ness. And it's, it's wonderful to be with you. And uh, thank you for that um, sort of uh, very glowing introduction. Um, I, I think the one thing I probably want to say right from the start is, you know, all of those things have probably figured in my journey. I don't pretend to be all of them at once. <laughs> so um, it's, um, it's part of having a confused um, and very varied identity, I guess, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Having a varied identity <laughs> is very good. <laughs> it makes you achieve the things you have done. Um, but leading on from that then, um, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, Glenn, you know, you've got, you have got an interesting background. Um, can you tell us about, you know, your sort of journey to where you are now and what you're doing now? That'd be great. Yes, I think, you know, all of us have, have journeys and, and we all sort of struggle to make sense of them sometimes. And sometimes it's about doors opening and, 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 and um, pursuing um, a particular um, uh, ambition or interest or, or even just a, um, a set of values. And I think in my own case, um, having grown up with a very deep connection to, to, to the natural world and to wildlife. Um, I, I was drawn to doing, to draw, I guess, to, to working with animals. And when you're an academic person or quite, quite good academic, quite good at school, you invariably are shoehorned into, oh, you should be a vet. And uh, I guess that's, that started me off on my professional journey was, was actually started studying veterinary medicine at, at, at Edinburgh. But I think what I didn't realize at the time was how limited a, a profession it is. I mean, it, it is very much structured around um, the, the, the domestic animals that have some form of value to humans and therefore um, can um, uh, contribute in, a, in, a, in an economic sense and, and justify um, medical in, interventions. And I, I was in many, many ways, very frustrated actually in practice with aspects of that. And, and although I, I found a role as a wildlife vet, and I was working for four years exclusively doing that um, with the RSPCA in the UK, um, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the animals I was actually seeing, um, you know, I was just dealing with the presenting problem and the underlying problems that have given rise to those presentations, you just don't touch. So when you're seeing oil birds, for example, who have been who are coming in off the beaches after an oil spill at sea, the effort goes into 
trying to, to save as many of those as, as possible. And obviously those that can't be saved are, are humanely euthanized. And that is a good in itself, but the underlying problem is that, you know, we've got a, a lot of oil being spilled at sea and ending up on the beaches. And that has a devastating effect on those ecosystems. And I think this is just one example of many, many thousands of uh, health problems that um, you know, we, we have in the world and that affect um, not just humans and, and their animals, not just our, our wildlife, but the, but the wider ecosystem. And our awareness of those is very, very limited. So I think, I think in exploring that, I moved away from the intervention, you know, the sort of the, the, the traditional veterinary model of um, looking after um, wildlife um, and indeed domestic animal patients and into trying to develop a more holistic approach to uh, health and welfare concerns. Okay. I guess that that took me back into education because I had to, I basically had a lot of stuff to unlearn. I've, I've learned a lot of the wrong things at vet school um, and I had a lot of things to unlearn and um, unlearn not just um, about the subject matter, but, but also about myself, actually. There was a lot of exploration or self-exploration that was required to understand, um, yeah, how, how the world is constructed, but, but also how I as an individual construct my own world and my own worldview and, and how others do that. Uh, so uh, that, that kind of brought me to the fork in the road where I retrained in education and specifically in experiential education. So I do, do a lot of outdoor and environmental education, um, which for me um, was a, an opportunity to, to spend a lot more time outside and, and, and particularly to engage in, in, in guiding. And that um, meant that I, I started working a lot more within the tourism sector, so particularly mountain tourism. And as, a, as an international mountain leader, I ended up uh, working in the guide school in Morocco, um, where mountain guides have been trained since since the 80s, and um, my my contribution there was very much on, on um, animal welfare in the first instance, but also on integrating many aspects of professional practice on expeditions. So you know, I was I was there with the guides, doing every year we would do a, a crossing of the of the high Atlas, uh, sort of 15 day uh, trek, uh, which was grueling because they were all very good athletes, I have to say, and um, I'm very keen to learn, um, but um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was hard keeping up with them, <laughs> I have to say. Um, but it meant that that, that, that set up an, a really good platform for what became my PhD, which was actually looking at um, animal welfare within the mountain tourism industry and, and just how little understanding there actually is of, um, of, of the mules who do a lot of the work carrying luggage carrying people um not just in morocco i mean this is a this is a worldwide industry um so so that became my um my my doctoral study program which which took up pretty probably 10 years of my life actually mm -hmm. and um involved also a move from from working in educate in the education in the school of education to working in the school of human geography so i I've kind of moved disciplines a lot. Um, and I guess this is where we met up, um, Vanessa, is that my one of the things I, I really 
drew a lot on to to help people see 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 what was in front of them but that they weren't seeing were, were, were still photography and video and so that that was integrated into the approach i took to um helping people see you know more deeply and and um uh, develop better understandings of um and insight and awareness of the mule and of mule welfare um so that took me up to what the end of the end of um 2017 and on finishing that phd i i found myself some by some circuitous route back at the vet school where i'd where i'd started in the early 90s um and um they were needing a, a coordinator for two of their holistic health programs so one is um, called one health and this seeks to train it, all healthcare professionals in, in holistic approaches that integrate human animal and environmental health and the other is specifically aimed at vets wanting to work in conservation and that's conservation medicine so i i coordinate those two those two uh, postgraduate um programs and that's where i am now okay well thanks it sounds really um fascinating journey as you said you've kind of gone round in a in a circle um to some degree um as you say I mean the, the Atlas Mountains I mean I, I, I when I was in uh, Morocco I went up to the Atlas Mountains I remember being thrown literally I was I was thrown up the mountain by this guide in flip-flops he was a local guide and he was literally I, I wasn't in flip-flops I was in these Timberland sandals that we kind of had heels on but that was another story um and he had flip-flops and he was just throwing me up the mountains and it's an absolutely beautiful place but um you do really get a sense of the terrain and and like you said they're they're, they're fit they're, these guys are really really fit um so yeah anyway um what, what got you interested in the natural world in the first place i mean you you touched on the fact that when you were younger that you know and, and animals and, and things i mean can you can you talk a little bit about um it's it's a good question and i think um i think we'll we'll all be able to relate to this in, in you know through our, through our own childhood experiences and an awareness of what what really resonated at a deep level so for me um, much of my childhood was spent either in in the southwest of england in bristol or back home um in in in, in france on on holiday so so we would spend most of our summers um in france and i was always you know from a very very young age in the garden outside really curious about any creepy crawly that I could find and very early on I um I guess I was climbing and exploring and um you know fascinated by birds particularly yeah. and um was very active in scouts as well and I think that 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 helped so I think you know as a as a cabin and a, a scout you know I, I pursued a lot of those interests so so the signs were there from a very early age and I think when you're aware of your energy, it's then a question of matching up with opportunities and trying to work out you know, how to um, how, how to find that that match between you know what you're interested in, what you care about, um, what you're good at, and you know what the world wants of you. So it's that it's that um, um, it, it's that intersection between. You know the potential you carry and the potential the world has for you and um i guess i guess in my own case 
Um, and this is this might make you smile because I, I I see why I see now why I can relate to mules. So for for me, I've got a stubborn streak as well. <laughs> so when I went for my interview at Edinburgh, I was told, you know, nobody's ever going to pay for a blackbird to be treated. And this was, you know, in, in 19, what, 1990, I probably had the interview. And in 1999, there I was um, getting a job with the RSPCA and treating blackbirds. So, um, so, so I, 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 I probably am quite persistent and quite good at proving people wrong in the long term. <laughs> but um, I think that's, that, re that reflects the, you know, the, it reflects what you're carrying inside and I think I think a lot of your readers will probably be able to relate to that in their own ways really. Absolutely yeah exactly it's good to, it's good to be stubborn sometimes it really is good to be stubborn um you get what you want in the end or you get you get the right the best outcome um obviously part of the journal of bio sorry part of the um, journal of biofood design is exploring our connection with nature and how it benefits us and how we relate to it um and how we interact with nature you're, um, I just wanted to just touch on you, and we're going to have another podcast on this, um, but you're writing a book, which I find really interesting, um, on the on an ecological pilgrimage and, and the way of St Cuthbert. Um, can you tell people who people who maybe not don't know what the way of St Cuthbert is? I mean, it's a it's a it's a journey. It's a route. Um, so it's a it's a great question. And thank, and, yeah, thank you very much for for for, for raising it. Um, in, in, in answering your question, I think I want to highlight that um, or emphasize that the way is, a, is, a, is, a, is one of our long distance paths in the UK. It's probably our best known pilgrimage route, um, but it also metaphorically speaking is a way of carrying oneself, a way of um, attending to the world and, and of being in the world. Um, so the the, the book I've been I've, I've been working on and, and that's now finished and, and is, is is due for release um, hopefully very soon um, explores uh, the, the 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 route that runs between uh, Melrose and the Scottish borders and Holy Island also known as Lindisfarne in Northumberland on the coast um, and and does so. In a, in a very slow and considered and attentive way that actually emphasizes the kind of things that can actually bring us into the present moment and can allow us to connect to ourselves, to, to maybe those we're traveling with if we're not alone, but, but most especially to, to the natural world. And I think one of the really exciting things about St. Cuthbert, who, in whose name this, this trail has been created and, and, and that, that actually links a lot of the sites that, that, that marked his own life is that he's probably one of the earliest conservationists. So he's somebody who um, had an instinct for protecting wildlife. And one of the National Trust's um, great reserves in the UK are the Farne Islands, which is where he ended his life. And he is um, associated with the eider duck. And in those parts, the eider duck is often called the cuddy duck, so cuddy from Cuthbert. And he is supposed to have had this very deep connection to that particular bird. And when you actually visit the Fine Islands and you're actually seeing how 
tolerant the, the, the female Ida is when she's on her, her nest of humans, you know, it, it, it feels like, a, like a, an immense privilege. And I've had him actually ensuring that those visiting the islands actually respected the, the wildlife there. I think um, you know, it's, it's, it's in many ways just sowing the seeds of, of, of um, you know, the idea of preserving um, some of these last relics of, well, of the wild places we, we still have in the, in the UK. Um, and um, the, I mean, and, you know, his, his life was marked by lots of examples of um, deep connection to nature. So one of the, one of the more famous ones is um, of him actually going into the sea, which was, which was one of his ways of becoming more present. You know, it was, uh, it, was, it was a cold immersion. And I think now we talk about that in terms of um, wild water swimming and, and the value for our mental health, but he was aware that it, was, it had value. But he is reported to have been dried off by two otters who came up to him on the beach and actually just rubbed themselves against him. And I think what's nice about that kind of story is that there are, there are people in the world who animals, whether wild or domestic, can read and they realize that they are um, not a threat. And those people um, seem to attract animals to them very, very easily. Just the other day, I, I, you know, the snow had fallen and I, I was out photographing wrens. And I'm not joking, one of these little wrens allowed me within a foot of her and she was hunting spiders and I actually managed to get, it's not the best picture, but it, I'm quite pleased that I can actually see this tiny little spider that she has caught in her bill. And if you can think of how small the wren is <laughs> and therefore how small the spider is. Um, and she was quite happy to you know, let me do that. You know, it was because I guess I was really respectful of her, very quiet. I was just allowing it to happen. And, and this is something that I think St. Cuthbert was almost certainly very, very good at. And it, it characterizes the attitude he brought to life and his ability to, to transcend differences. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a great legacy to explore and it's one that I would, I would encourage anybody interested in walking and, and exploring um, uh, the, the border country between Scotland and England to, 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 to embrace. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's lovely. I've, I mean, I, I didn't, I mean, I was aware of St. Cuthbert Way, but I, I, you know, having talked to you and obviously, you know, read about it a little bit, I've, I'm fascinated. I love long distance walking. I've, I've, I've done the West Highland Way and Hadrian's Wall and other things, but um, I, I haven't done that yet. And I haven't, I didn't have the, I didn't have the guts to go across to Lindis Farm when I was up there um, before, when I was up there on business, I was going up to Edinburgh because I wasn't sure if the water was going to come in or not. And I didn't, I didn't trust my, the communication that I had. So, um, but, I, but I, I will do it one day and um and it's a lovely what you say about some people um and i think we, we all have it it's probably maybe we tuned out of it or we're you know we could be too fast in our lives i mean as you say this whole lockdown people are, are treating life and themselves in a different way they're more respectful to themselves and to their environment um and they're also observing nature in a, in a, in a more appreciative way um, I mean, I've, I mean, I've got squirrels and birds. I've got loads of birds out there, and I was doing some filming just because I'm doing these mindful moment things. Um, and I just didn't realise how many different birds I had outside. It was just 
bonkers. Um, but I go out there and I say, I speak to the squirrel and it doesn't move. You know, I kind of go, I'm just giving you some food. And it just sort of sits, sits there and waits and, you know, doesn't run off now. So, um, yeah, it's just nice to commune. It's nice to commune with nature. I'm sort of leading on from that. Um, your PhD in, in human geography, which you mentioned, um, it sort of it sort of explores the, the sort of complexities of human behaviour change um, for for one animal welfare within sort of international mountain tourism industry. But um, sort of going on from that, um, and obviously the book that you're writing and your appreciation of of the human connection with nature and and animals in particular. Um, I mean, how do you see the benefits of, or can we can we learn anything from your findings in how we might apply that to our lives now? Um, and also, you know, and also the custodianship of our planet. Um, but kind of like just, you know, what sort of takeaways could could you maybe share with with our audience? Um, um, I mean, two things come to me. I think the first is is a very practical one, mm. and that's that um, a lot of our relationships are char characterized by an, an unequal distribution of power. And often we are unaware of how we are holding that power and often abusing that power. So we see it in relationships, you know, particularly between um, men and women, for example. Um, and, and that's why feminist care theory has, has, has really started to shake up a lot of the ways we think about equality, diversity and inclusivity. This year and last, I think we're seeing it very much with regard to the race question. So I think we're becoming more aware of, um, you know, the post-colonial issues that, that our world really needs to, you know, to, to, to get to grips with. Um, and I think specifically with regard to working equines, so, so horses and mules and donkeys, there has historically been um, a reliance on um, on equipments, and particularly bits that are are very very painful. And so, the that reliance means that um, a relationship based on, on on control and on fear um, mm -hmm. predominate. And often, you know, the, the the communities who who draw on this, you know, haven't even had opportunity have had no opportunity to explore the alternatives so then they're, they're, they're not aware of what a more respectful relationship feels like and that res that respectful relationship is, is based much more on sort of you know um more concepts of mutuality and, re and reciprocity but therefore of listening and it's this willingness to listen to to the other and to explore um less controlling ways of uh, relating that I think came out of my my PhD. I think the the second thing that um, I would I would mention there, um, and it's relevant to listening, is is that in biology and, ph and philosophy now, the concept of the self. So so this idea that there are individuals, it, you know, has been blown out of the water. You know, we know that we are deeply connected. So you can't define yourself without also defining yourself in relation to others, in relation to your environment. Um, you know, if we think about ourselves, you know, we've got a, a gut biome, you know, we've got more cells in, in us that we would identify as non-self than self. And yet, you know, that, they, they contribute to how we think, how we feel. Um, and there are countless examples of, of just how much of an extended self we actually have. 
And this means that within biology and within philosophy, uh, and, and particularly within the social sciences, we, we can start exploring ideas of becoming with. So it's this idea that we, we can become mule, we can become cat, we can become bird, because this potential we carry within us to understand the other and to, 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 to integrate that understanding and that awareness into who we are um, can actually inform how we then behave in the world. And where it's very relevant to environmental education is that um, children, when they, when they are exploring the world, they, they actually just automatically assimilate, you know, that connection with, you know, with, with nature into their, into their identities. And it, and it's, it's something that modern society with its, um, indoor life and its emphasis on the digital world um, has has shut off so for me what what we're what this is all about is actually opening back up those the, those opportunities so that we can um, realize more, more of the potentials that we carry within us and um, become much more community oriented um, and it's it is it's it's a, it's um it, it is a community project in that sense. Mm -hmm. And how how would we do that? I mean, what sort of steps would people do if they were in in their community, for instance? What would you how would you like? What would be the first step for somebody to kind of re-engage in that way? Um, I, I'm I'm definitely not prescriptive in the in, you know in, in this, and I think it comes down very much to what sort of person you are. So if you're somebody who dances. All you've got to do is watch two tango dancers to realize what good listening mm -hmm. might entail. Um, the same is true of you know great musicians, and you know there there are moments when you see people um, you know playing together, but particularly improvising together, and the quality of listening is incredible. Yeah. When you see a horse and rider who can work together without any form of control. And where where the communication is just based on the subtlest of signs, so maybe changes in the seat position, mm -hmm. or changes in the voice, mm -hmm. uh, you, know, you, you start to realise what is actually possible, and you'll see this on the sports field, yeah. you know, where where that understanding is present, and people are are reading what is there to be read, and there's this there's almost this sixth sense there that that is actually um about anticipation but it's therefore future oriented and i think where where it's getting really exciting is that when we talk about communities of change so community whether this be you know communities of practice or communities of learning particularly communities of change mm -hmm. when communities come together and they talk about the world that they've currently got which nobody is really happy with because it's characterized by so many of those power abuses mm -hmm. and compare that with the world that they really want they start to realize where they can make those changes. And we're seeing that now in community-led responses to climate change, um, where people are empowering themselves to, to make you know, very significant changes. Mm -hmm. um, so at whatever level we're, you know, we're talking at, you know, it, it is possible. And I think that empowerment is the, the, the source of a lot of hope for you know for the future 
at a time when we really need it as well, because you know we're confronted on a daily basis with you know a, a whole load of crises. Um, you know, whether it be the pandemic, whether it be you know the the, the climate crises or the the, the collapse in you know, global biodiversity, it's you know at a global level these are huge huge challenges, and I guess I guess my last point would be in medicine all the health challenges we face are immense and require a collaborative approach. So the need for that community approach, the need for people to work together across um, disciplines and and also with local communities is is is, is bigger than it's ever been. Because we can learn so much from each other, can't we? Everybody has different backgrounds, different experience and stuff. And as you say, if you have patience and you can listen, you have empathy um, and you open your heart and open your mind, um, your life can be so much richer and the planet can be so much richer in, in many ways. Um, in, in one of your articles um, on the Teaching Matters blog on, um, on the Edinburgh University, and I'll, I'll put the link on our website, um, you quote Rumi um, from his the guest house and you, and you show a photograph that you've taken of, of tree roots that have overtaken and surrounding and maybe even embracing this old human house. I mean, obviously you selected that image for a reason. Um, can you can explain what that means to you? Um, and, and what can we yes. learn from it? Um, there's, there's lots of things coming to me. So I, when I... When I took that photograph, I, I was having a quite a quite a sort of dark day actually, and I was very um, despondent with things. And um, um, I confess, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd gone to, to a particular area uh, with Kirsty, my partner, to to go for a walk, and um, was really frustrated by the crowds. Mm-hmm. And just there was, I, I was just thinking, us, yeah, the weather's the weather's poor, the lights poor. There's too many people around. And I drove back up the hill and I, I just pulled into a lay-by and decided I was going to explore a particular um, area of woodland that I had never been in. And um, I just took a um, took the path less okay. travelled and explored um, a, a faint path into the woods. And about 20 minutes later, stumbled on this, this old ruin. And the, the, the fascinating thing about the ruin was that it was no longer clear who was supporting who, you know, whether the tree was breaking down the ruin or holding the ruin up. Um, the, the tree as well was showing her roots. And I, I always try and use a, a, a gender rather than the word it when talking about life, sort of non-human uh, entities, which is why I'm saying her, in French, for example, we say l'arbre, um, so the, the tree. Um, sorry, no, it's no, it's a, it's a, no. I, I'm wrong, actually. In in French, it's un arbre, not une arbre. So it's. I'm going to have to go and double check that. Actually, my my my. Um, but anyway, whether it's a male or a female, you know, it comes down maybe to character. Yeah. Um, so we can come back to that. Maybe it's maybe it's not important as long as we have respect for the tree. Yeah. But what I was really struck by there was. The extent of the roots that could be seen mm. and it was almost no longer possible to tell what was a branch and what was a root mm. um, so so that was the i guess what was happening on the at the time mm. and and i think as i was thinking about the 
image, and I'm thinking about it metaphorically in particular afterwards, um, this idea of you know, the common root etymologically between human and humus, between yeah. this idea yeah. that you know, we are all compost at the end of the day. You know, when, when people talk about ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you know, we are going back. You know, we're, we're formed of organic matter and, and um, that matter is in constant circulation. Um, so, um, you know, the, the structure of our hand will be completely different in a few weeks time than it is today. And I was, I was just struck by different elements of time there because this, this house was no longer a house and yet was welcoming in life, was, you know, in, in, in many ways rewilding um, itself so because it's a house i'm going to use it so, <laughs> um, uh, so I'm, I'm a real pain with my students over this um uh and yes i think i think the reason i i i, I found meaning in, in in rumi's words were this idea that a guest house is actually about the welcome we extend and, and that ability to welcome whoever um, comes to cast their shadow on our doorstep. And um, we often don't know what gifts they are actually bringing. So there was a lot of um, sort of deeper sort of philosophical and metaphorical meaning in, in the image and in the experience. To turn it into quite a bit, actually. <laughs> it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful image, and it, it made it, it evoked lots of feelings and emotions and responses um, with within me as well. So so thanks for sharing that as well, and thanks for sharing your insight. Um, I mean, obviously you you've mentioned you, you explore the sort of complex field of conservation medicine. Um, and from a unique angle, um, you know, sort of inspiring new ways of thinking about the roles that veterinarians and other professionals can play in the field. I mean, can you explain what sort of conservation medicine is and really kind of what that means to you? So I think for vets who are wanting to work in conservation, mm. one, of the, one of the things that often holds them back is, is a limited understanding of what their contribution might be. And historically, um, I think vets often think of themselves as diagnosticians and, 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 and you know, people who then yeah. work with a diagnosis to uh, apply a treatment. Um, however, when we start working at a population level and, 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 and indeed beyond that at an ecosystem level, it's really unclear who the patient actually is because you know, we're, we're no longer just focusing on individuals. We're no longer just focusing on you know, groups of individuals. We're actually focusing on the individual and those groups of individuals in a within a ecological system and this really challenges us to to, to think about well, what does it mean to be healthy mm -hmm. um and and where do we where do we draw those lines and, and how artificial are those lines mm -hmm. um and I think particularly when we look at the, the anthropogenic health challenges we see everywhere in the world today. So all of those health problems that humans are causing either because of the pollution that we're um, causing, either because of 
um, global warming, you know, changes, changes in sea temperature, um, changes in food availability, um, changes in, in behavior as well of, of animals, um, changes in, in consumption patterns, you know, the, the, the impact we have is, is immense. Um, before Rachel Carson's work, The Silent Spring came out, I think our awareness of, you know, the impact of a lot of these hidden um, uh, um, human effects, whether it be lead or, or chemicals, you know, was really negligible. And I think we've, we're now in a, you know, living through a period where we're more open to them. And yet we're still, you know, we're still only just realizing the damage that plastic is causing, for yeah. example. We're only starting to realize um, the impact that a lot of the treatments we use have. So, you know, the use of antimicrobials, the use of herbicides, the use of pesticides, Within the last year or two, vets, so you know, domestic animal vets, are starting to, to question whether they should actually be routinely using flea treatments on dogs and cats because those have an effect on the environment. You know, they're they're washed off and 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 can find themselves in the environment and therefore have an impact on um, on wildlife and, and on ecosystems. And if we think about the wormers that, that get used, I mean, one of the things I was seeing in Morocco in the areas where certain um, animal welfare charities were working was that they'd be worming routinely the mules working there. And you saw no dung beetles in the area. So the, the dung beetle population had been decimated. And in the UK, that's one of our big um, conservation issues is that we've, we've decimated the dung beetle population on on all our farms, you know, a, a lot of the, the beetles that should exist on our farms and, 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 and indeed elsewhere, you know, have, have been, been decimated and we're, we're still not fully aware of that. Mm. Um, so we're, um, I guess coming back to the health question, I think um, we need to become much more subtle, much more targeted, you know, these, these sledgehammer treatments are, you know, are, are, um, often way too blunt. So we also need to be educating owners more about the appropriateness of, of treatments. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of work still to do. Um, so I, I see this as being a, a long-term project um, and, and one that, that all professionals can, can actually contribute to, um, you know, be, because the, you know, the, the world needs it, you know, it's, um, you know, we're not, we're, we're creating problems rather than solving them in, in many, many ways. And that's something we've got to develop an ability to, 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 to deal with. So it's about a response ability for, for me, or yeah. the creation of responsibility. Yeah. I mean, just, just sort of picking up on, on what you say about the, you know, what we inoculate or what we, we um, give our animals, you know, in order for them to, you know, survive in an environment what well, we think we do actually when you do it doesn't need to rethink I mean it's part of the photo aid stuff um work that I was doing when I was out in Uganda and I was with the nomadic people so there's the Penha uh, Plastoris and Environmental Network in the Horn of Africa they work with um groups and what the government's there is saying you've got to be you know you mustn't move around anymore you've got to be sedentary you've got to stay and because their love is the Ancoli cows um you know the ones with the big horns and they're kind of they're they're suited for the environment 
And because what the, they're trying to make them do is, and what they, a lot of them are doing now, is they're having Frisian cows. And you can imagine, I mean, Frisian cows by nature comes from Europe, <laughs> you know, not suited particularly for potentially an African environment where the heat is so obviously they have to inject them with like loads and loads of stuff the thing is um when you go out there in that, that those people the, the the children um because they had like you know traditional and coli cow milk they're really fit they're really fit they're it's organic milk it's organic produce because there's no injections in there or anything like that okay there's, there's other economic issues which you know that's, that's that's another another point but but actually that was kind of sustainable with what they were doing but um by by now trying to make them have a different way of farming and and having a living um they're going to cause another problem um i think it's i don't, I don't you know it's, it's just you know you're seeing that happen in a in a in a country which has potential to um to grow but anyway that's it's also a political issue presumably um going on there too like everywhere is this must be a money issue <laughs> And I think it's 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 um it's an issue of colonialism in in science and 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 indeed in healthcare. I think it's very easy to export an answer that has that might be appropriate in one part of the world to another part of the world without realizing that actually the problem is constituted in situ. So the challenges that we face in any one part of the world will have you know its own local elements. Yeah. And I think we need to be aware of you know that that complexity um and and also be you know view ourselves as facilitators rather than as you know the, the people who are going to solve the, the, the problem and you know it's um yeah it's great. i think i think we're seeing it in tanzania at the moment with the you know the response of the government what i've understood in the in the, in the press and i may have got this wrong but um my understanding is their resistance to um, vaccines is because a lot of the, the suspicions around you know, Western um, approaches, and you know, in, in many ways we're responsible for for that because if we've not built that trust, you know, we um, you know, don't have you know, the, the the sort of dialogical um, um, respect for possibilities in place that allow us to share useful um, solutions. You know, and it, it's going to be very sad if they if if they you know radically refuse um, the, the the possibility of, of of vaccines. But but if their reality is that they've they've often been um, abused by developed countries then that's their reality and we need to try and understand that and and um and and not sort of paint it as as some strange um strange response because there's the, i think there's more there at a you know at a, at a sociological level going on yeah um, yeah, yeah um i mean i just it's just um, another thing that i read in the you know recently as well is that the the, the bees um, the government has just signed this um, agreement to allow this particular pesticide to be used on the crops, which is harmful to the bees. I mean, what, I, mean I, I, know, I don't want to go into politics, I'm trying to keep it neutral, but it does make you question 
who their advisors are or what the, their agenda is, because without bees, we don't have a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't quite understand where they're coming at with that, um, apart from the fact that it's going to produce crops quicker. And so therefore the Brexit thing won't be, you know, the solution won't be needed because we'll be importing stuff. We won't need to import stuff or export stuff. We'll be growing extra crops in this country. I mean, I don't, I have no idea what their um, rationale is for that. Um, and I think a lot of it would be would be because the the decisions are made, you know, in a short term cycle, uh, and not in a long term cycle, and that's part of that is because um, you know the way our politicians are elected, you know, they're there for for short periods of time, and also because of the power of certain parts of the electorate. So I think um, farming has historically been a traditional um, sector and. Um, might not be particularly open to mm. um, you know, the radical rethinking that's needed of, of um, agriculture if we're to move away from a, an industrial model of production. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing that with land management issues across, mm. across the UK, you know, whether it's with regard to reforesting the uplands, um, with regard to understanding what carbon capture you know, yeah. is needed, um, not just across the UK but 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 globally, you know, I think I think there's a lot of change that that needs to happen pretty fast. Mm. Um, but our our past experiences are, are are determining very much, you know, what to do next. Whereas you know, we, we also really need to be paying attention to the to what the future needs, not what the past has, has, has taught us, because the past is not a predictor of the future. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, or it's or it's its ability to predict the future is very limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you afterwards. There's a link. Uh, I wrote a piece about. Um, um, there was a there was a farmer in the FT. He was right. He wrote an article about you know see how things have changed for him. Um, and how, I mean, there's obviously this whole move for rewilding, but he, you know, he made the point, you know, there's, it's, it's a lot easier to be a rewilding farmer <laughs> than it is to be a traditional farmer in a way, because the animals move around and, and sort of almost, you know, not self-care, but it's, 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 you know, they'll, it's, it's a healthier way for them, um, obviously, because they're building their muscles up and everything else. So I'll send you a, a link afterwards. Um, in one of the articles that you've written for the University of Edinburgh, um, you've written, um, it's, called, it's Embedding Systems Thinking and Sustainability and Transdisciplinary Thinking, Teaching and Learning. Um, you discuss um, human ecosystems versus ecosystems, which is what you've been talking about really here. And, I'm, and I have to quote you here. Um, it says, the future of education it's increasingly recognized um, lies in fostering ecosystem awareness and self-realization, higher level proficiencies that can be realized through developing our abilities as listeners and as the members of a community, a woodland community perhaps, whose symphonies are rich because every part contributes more fully. And you, you touched earlier about um, how, you know, we should nurture that ability as listener, as, as being listeners. Um, I mean, can you describe your vision a little bit more detail? Um, and you, uh, you mentioned particularly slowing down. Um, I mean, how can fostering a relationship with nature help us 
be better human beings and um and yeah be better human beings really and and respect our natural world i think there's, there's sort of two parts to your question there um i guess in terms of moving away from an ecosystem view of the world and towards a more ecosystem view of the world um you know this is this is possible both at the individual level but also at the group level um the key shift that's happening is is, is that our, our our source of attention moves outside of ourselves so um we we all have this tendency often to to listen um not to what is happening out, you know, outside of ourselves to what other people are saying but to what we're wanting to say you know in reaction to the situation and and so we're not, we're not actually listening you know we're, we're we're very much centered deep within ourselves and we're not paying attention to all of the stuff that's going on around us and that's relevant to our ability to be able to to pick up on um information that actually um is is you know, it's disconfirming data. So it, it, it actually tells us that our view of the world is actually needing to be adjusted. You know, it's not correct. Um, you know, that um, that dirty look that somebody has given you is, is not actually because you're a terrible person or because you're, you've upset them. Um, you know, th th there's something else going on and you haven't got the information to, to evaluate the situation. Um, so moving, moving to so paying attention to the outside world you know, is, is the key thing and curiosity allows us to, to really actually do that. And, and in my work, one of the key things there is to um, realize that when, when you see a fear response from an animal or from a human being, there's something else you need to find out. You need to find out why they're fearful because fear is one of these corrosive emotions that never brings out the best in people. You know, we, if we want to bring out the best in people, we've got to move beyond fear. So paying attention to these things allows us to, to widen our, our um, awareness. And then when we actually start empathizing with them and empathizing in the sense that we um, start walking in their shoes and we actually view them as a sacred um, other mm -hmm. means that our our, our, our source of attention has actually shifted completely from within ourselves to within them. And we're suddenly starting to um, understand their life world. And having done that, you know, whatever we, you know, we, we then say or do afterwards will have benefited from that awareness because you know, we're suddenly um, aware of somebody who we might have previously have you know, strongly disapproved of or strongly disliked, we're suddenly seeing them as a, as a, you know, as a real person. And you know, this, this doesn't have to be a human person. This could be a, an other than human person. It could be, a, you know, it could be um, um, you know, the mule that's just kicked you, for example, um, which um, you know, is a, is a, is a, for me is a great example. But um, and the, 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 I think the, the thing that sort of, certainly in my work is really exciting is that once we've once, we, once we're developing that ability to, to empathize and to listen empathically um, and you know, to, to, to bring that in, you know, we're able to engage in dialogue. But when we um, 
actually slow ourselves down on top of that and we actually calm down and see what the future is calling for so see what is needed in response to um you know the whole you know what what we're dealing with as a as, you know as a collective um our ability to tap into um generative possibilities and and, and actually be creative and, and realize possibilities that previously we wouldn't even have imagined materializes you know and, and becomes available to us and this is this is crucial for finding um ways through a lot of the complexity that we face today which has a lot of uncertainty around it um and um you know i, I think when i when i teach around this I, you know i, I emphasize that the, the the kind of complexity we're talking about is, is emergent you know it, it's it's a form of complexity that um is is characterized by an incomplete problem statement um a lack of awareness of who's involved um because you know i think as we were talking about earlier we often overlook amongst other entities insects and trees and you know all and women <laughs> so um so so, so there, there are at least those two elements of a, of a that characterize emergent complexity and i guess it's it, it allows us to, so, so where I've taken this is I've taken this into spaces where we're asking um, professionals from different disciplines to work together uh, on complex health challenges, but then also to work with other stakeholders who may um, you know, be members of the community, who may be um, you know, people who, who themselves have a vested interest in in, 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 in the health challenge. Mm -hmm. And that, that has the potential to deliver much better um, um, problem statements and much, much better ways of trying to work with that problem statement and, and evolve it such that um, our, um, our responses you know, have um, more potential to to actually be sustainable. Mm -hmm. I think I think a lot of us will have seen um, you know, technical people brought in to solve a problem, and then you know, a year down the road, you realise that the you know the, 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 what they'd suggested as a as an answer to the problem has been abandoned because the problem statement was incomplete and it's not actually the real problem or you know there, there are things that have been overlooked mm -hmm. and i think that's 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 a characteristic i think of a lot of the, the challenges that um you know we we need to respond to is that we, we we've got to we've got to um invest a lot in this capacity building so that we're better able to to respond to these challenges yeah i'm not sure if that captured it's quite it's it, it's, it's i find it really hard to kind of <laughs> capture you know what it what it means and why this shift from the ego to the eco is really really important yeah well i get i mean the whole thing about the interdisciplinary thing that you mentioned and uh, you know that, i think that's a fundamental um key to unlocking understanding and, and listening and everything else because everybody has something different to say um just a sort of bit of background the sort of the journal of biophilic design is interdisciplinary for that very reason 
um, you know, we've got, you know, so yourself, you're really interesting background from veterinary to, you know, the sort of human science type thing and, and geography and, and everything else. We've got um, gardeners, you know, forest walkers, we have interior designers and architects and change managers and because um, everybody has something different to bring about our relationship to nature and the natural world and how it benefits us. Um, I mean, I started this initially because of um, seeing how views made an impact in healthcare. It was a very personal um, situation that I was going in and my family. And that's kind of, that was my impetus for setting up Argenta Wellness, who, who is the, the main company behind the Journal of Biophilic Design. Um, and I think it's just really important. So, and I really, really appreciate your time here, Glenn. And I, I you know, thanks very much. I really look forward to speaking with you again. Um, as a kind of sort of final word, uh, really, um, you know, if you could brush the world with sort of biophilia, with like the sort of appreciation of life, of, of living things, I mean, what would, what would the world look like? What would it be for you? Um, well, the, th the thing that's coming to me at the moment is, um, is something about normalising these things so that they're more accessible um, and that we 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 pay the the, the attention to them that they, they they deserve so you know it should be acceptable to go for a walk you know for a meeting yeah it should be you know much easier for people to actually take an extended lunch break and actually get some contact with 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 nature um you know, healthcare situation should have windows um, looking out onto green spaces. You know, uh, all our communities should have access to to rich woodland, and and that should be part of you know our urban planning. Um, schools, school children should actually have much more time um, devoted to outdoor activities, and. Um, you know, I think I think for me this is about access and about availability and about just saying, well, you know, this these are rights that that, yeah. that, that people um, have and, and 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 that shouldn't be denied. So so um, I th yeah, I guess I guess for me it's it it, it comes down to normalising this so that we um, integrate it into. I guess into a well-being economy, into a well-being lifestyle, a well-being approach to, um, you know, family, community, work, everything. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.